0: God, we're reminded today of your goodness to us, of your grace, that you're a perfect heavenly father. You're perfect in all of your ways to us. Even today, God, as we talk about your character, we talk about your goodness, talk about who you are, God, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to know you. In Christ's name, the people of God together said... Amen. Hey, that was, that was awesome. Would you guys thank those guys with me again? That's... <clears throat> Love that. Uh, this morning, uh, my friend Jamie Rasmussen, who's the lead pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church, a guy that really mentored me and poured into me, was supposed to be here. And I say supposed to because he got a fever earlier in the week and he just couldn't shake it and just couldn't shake it and just couldn't shake it. So he gave me a call on Friday and he said, I'm sorry, I just can't be there, I, I, I feel so bad, he's, I, you know, he's running a fever, and he said, I don't know which, I feel worse, physically or emotionally, so I'm so sorry, I can't be there, and I said, that is okay, your health is more important, we will just reschedule you for the middle of February, and that will be easy on you, and because we'll just bring you out here in the dead of winter, that, that makes total sense, get you out of Scottsdale and into Canada in, in uh, February, but Jamie misses, uh, missed the opportunity to be here this morning, he uh, covets your prayers, he is feeling better, so that's good, uh, and we will have him back down the road, I just want to let you know that. Um, instead of uh, continuing the series in choices today, I want to talk a little bit about the character of God talk a little bit about the character of God and, and then we'll continue our series in choices next week. So that's where we're going to be this morning in Exodus chapter 34, but before you turn there in your Bibles, I just kind of want to set it up for us a little bit here. And we're going to start with this kind of bottom line truth this morning and it's this is what you believe about God matters. What you believe about God matters. I love that song that the youth band even just sang for us is uh, that, that God is a good, good father. It's who he is. It's who he is. And now I'm loved by him and that's who I am. And what we believe about God impacts and shapes what we believe about ourselves, how we think about ourselves, how we think about life. Even if you would say that you are an agnostic, that is to say that God cannot be known and that we can't know even if he exists or not, even that choice to believe that about God shapes What you think about you, what you believe about God matters. Or even if you are an atheist and said there is no God, that matters. What you believe about him, even if it's that he does not exist, matters. What you believe about his character, what you believe about his heart, it matters. If you want to use the $2 uh, church word, theology matters. How we understand God matters in our day-to-day life and radical shifts radical departures away from biblical theology if, if we were to if we were to just kind of leave the Bible on the shelf and talk about, just kind of make up something about God, those are pretty easy to spot, even for someone who wouldn't call himself a Christian. Like if I got up here on a Sunday morning and I said, welcome to Baby Glen Church, we like to talk about God here, but his name's not really God, it's, you know, Schmod, and he's like totally made of chocolate. You know, you would go... That doesn't sound like biblical theology, you know. I don't think that's who God is. I'm pretty sure that the Bible doesn't say that. So that radical shift away from biblical theology, away from a right thinking about God is easy to spot. But it's the little tweaks. It's the little changes. It's the little Things that aren't authentic, that aren't biblical, that are pretty difficult to spot sometimes. The the ways we twist God just a little bit, the way we misunderstand his character just a little bit, the way we pull out scripture out of context just a little bit that are difficult to spot and, check this out, can be extremely dangerous. Those little tweaks can be extremely dangerous. A couple years ago, during this Super Bowl, they interviewed a guy named Ray Lewis, who plays for the Baltimore Ravens, before the Super Bowl, and then they played the deal, and then after the game, they interviewed him, and the Ravens ended up winning this game, and they asked Ray Lewis, you know, hey, how'd you 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 win, and all that stuff, I don't know, whatever, they asked him, and Ray Lewis responds with, if God is for us, who can be against us? which is a direct quote, by the way, from the book of Romans. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if God is a Ravens fan, no one will stand against us. Now, there are two problems with that statement. Number one, God is not a Ravens fan, God is a Packers fan, okay? So that's, that's first and foremost, okay? Number two, some of you are like, bless the Lord, and some of you are like, you know, well, Clearly, because of the injuries that are happening on Cowboys, you know, that's clearly not God's team. So, um, the other thing that's problematic uh, about Ray Lewis' statement, and, uh, and extremely problematic, uh, is, is that that's not what the Bible's talking about, <laughs> When you say, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's talking about the Christian life. It's talking about salvation. It's talking about God's choice to pour out his grace on humanity. It's not talking about football at all. But Ray Lewis says that kind of stuff in popular culture and even some Christians sometimes. We, there's these little tweaks, these things that sound biblical, that feel biblical. It's like that fake designer purse that you buy, you know? It's like, this kind of looks like a coach handbag, but it's not quite there. It's not quite right, and those things can be extremely dangerous. I've heard it said before that God made us in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since, <laughs> making God to be in our image. So here's what we're going to ask ourselves this morning. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about God? And, and not just what does the Bible say, but more specifically, what does God say about God? <laughs> Now, what do we say or, or what does Ray Lewis say or what does pop culture say or what does People Magazine say or what does a professor say or what does your friend say or what does your mom or dad say or what do you say, what do you think? Not even, check this out, what does the pastor say? Because God has introduced himself to us in the scripture. Can you believe that? He's introduced himself to us. In Exodus chapter 34, he introduces himself to Moses. So we're gonna say, okay God, Let's, we're, we'll let you define you today. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally okay. The scripture is up here on the screen just so you can follow along with us. There's also a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one, to be honest with you, just as a gift. If you, like, have nine Bibles already at home and you just want a different translation, please don't take that Bible, okay? But if you don't have one, we would love you to have a copy of the scripture. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. The Bible is 66 books, different genres, and Exodus is towards the beginning, Genesis and then Exodus. And Exodus, just like every book in the Bible, is divided into chapters, so you're looking for chapter 34, right after chapter 33 and right before chapter 35. I want to set up the context just a little bit to you. The nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, was enslaved under an Egyptian re- regime. And God sent a redeemer named Moses to pull God's people out. And you've probably heard that song before, Tell Old Pharaoh to what? Let my people go. That's That wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have sang. Okay, but that's the point is that... That Moses did go and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, and that's indeed what happened after seven plagues and the after a number of plagues, sorry, and, and, and let God's people go. And so Moses goes out to the wilderness with the people of God, and he goes up on Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with the people through Moses. Moses is the mediator of that covenant. And God writes the stipulations of that covenant on two stone tablets. While Moses is up on the mountain, God's people People, the nation of Israel decided it would be a really great idea to collect all their jewelry together, melt it down, and make a golden calf, an idol, a golden cow, and begin to worship it. Okay? So, this is just free advice for you this morning. If anyone ever says, You bring all your golden jewelry, we're gonna melt it down and make an idol and worship it, you say to them, No. Okay? That's just a tip. Okay? Then, as Moses comes down the mountain, he sees the nation of Israel doing this and worshiping an idol, and he takes the tablets that God has given him, the stone tablets, and he throws them down and breaks them in anger. Tip number two, if God ever gives you something don't throw it down and break it, okay? And God calls Moses back on the mountain and he says, all right, I'm going to bring you back up on this mountain and I am going to write with my own hand the stipulations of this covenant. And in the context of that conversation between God and Moses, God introduces himself. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pull four character traits of God from that conversation. There are thousands upon on thousands and not enough pages, and not enough books, and not enough libraries in the world to hold all the goodness and grace that is the character of God, to hold the depth of the character of God. But we're going to pick four from this passage in Exodus chapter 34 and allow God to introduce Himself to us. Exodus chapter 34, verse 1. The scripture reads this way The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself. Two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I'm assuming that's a little bit embarrassing for Moses, but that's beside the point. Verse 2, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, toward the earth and worshiped. We're gonna to get to four character traits of God, and we're gonna to try to unpack as much of that scripture as we possibly can, but I've chosen kind of an order to go through today because it's important that we go through a, a kind of a, a logical order here when it comes to the character traits of God that he reveals to us in Exodus chapter 34. So if you're taking notes, here's the first character trait of God that we understand and can observe in Exodus chapter 34, and that's this. It's God's self revelation God's self-revelation it's also called God's self-attestation we're going to use some two dollar theological words here this morning we're going to use some seminary words it's going to be like a seminary class are you excited I am so here's what God's self-revelation means that God is both able and free to completely define who he is that definition of God's self revelation is up there on the screen. It's up here on the TV beside me that God is both able and free to completely define who he is. I wanna show it to you from the scripture and then we're gonna talk about the implications. This particular character trait of God is related to his immutability. That is to say that he does not change. This character trait of God is related to his aseity. That means that God is independent and he needs nothing outside of himself to continue to exist. You and I need things outside of ourselves; We need food, water, air, whatever. God doesn't need any of those things. He is completely independent independent and dependent on nothing thus he is free and able to completely define who he is let's see it in the scripture in verse 5 there in exodus 34 says that the lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there that's moses and proclaimed the name of the lord this is not a spiritual journey That Moses is kind of figuring out God as he goes. This is not a God that Moses has made up. This is not a God that Moses has decided that he might try to figure out. God proclaims God. That word proclaim there means to shout, to announce, or to herald. God declares who he is. God reveals himself. In the Old Testament, that word name means uh, it's like your standing or your reputation or your fame. It's his entire character. The whole of a person's character is, is kind of encapsulated in that word name. So when God proclaims his name, he is revealing his character. Again, this is not something that Moses is figuring out. This is God's decision to reveal who he is now i want to show you something very very interesting in verse six look up here on the screen in verse six it says that the lord <coughs> excuse me that the lord passed before him that's moses and proclaimed the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness now In the original language, Hebrew, that's the language that the Old Testament is written in, there would be no punctuation marks in the original language. Now, When we translate into English, we add punctuation marks. We add commas, we add quotations, we add periods, we add all kinds of things just to help it read better in English so that the original meaning is captured when we read it in English. But in the original language, there would be no (coughs) punctuation marks. So let's take the punctuation marks away. That's still English, by the way, just so you know, but all the punctuation marks are gone. So let's go back, and I want you to focus on without the punctuation, or now with the punctuation marks, this word right here, these couple of words. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord. It's up there on the screen. The rest of the text is grayed out, and the part we're highlighting is highlighted there in white. Does everybody see it? Okay, good. So here's the thing there are a couple of biblical scholars and Old Testament Hebrew scholars that have suggested that that punctuation mark after the, the comma after proclaimed should not be there. And I want to show you what they're suggesting. They're suggesting that that comma shouldn't be there, that the quotation shouldn't be there, and that there should be a period there. So go back one slide. Does everybody see it? proclaimed, comma, and then the Lord begins to speak. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. But remember, those commas and quotation marks, those are ours in English to help it read better. And these Hebrew scholars are saying that that should say, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, period. Go to the next slide. Then God speaks, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Does everybody see what's happening here? Here's what God is doing. He's saying, I define me. The Lord proclaims the Lord. The Lord defines who he is. God gets to define who he is. God says, I declare me. I proclaim me. I define me. I reveal me. This is the same conversation that Moses has with God in Exodus 3 when he says, I am who I am. I just am. God is both free and able to completely define who he is. So God's gift to us begins with a revelation of himself. God's gift of grace begins by him disclosing and revealing his character, proclaiming his heart and telling us about himself. A scholar that I really like, a guy named Al Mohler writes this, he says, The starting point for all genuinely Christian thinking is the existence of the self-revealing God of the Bible. The foundation of the Christian worldview is the knowledge of the one true and living God. The fact of God's existence sets the Christian worldview apart from all others, and from the very beginning, listen close now, we must affirm that, that our knowledge of God is entirely dependent on the gift of divine revelation. Say it one more time, that our knowledge of God is entirely dependent on the gift of divine revelation. Now, church people, and I'm a church person, and so I love you, I've been in church a long time, this is my church, this is my home, I love you very much sometimes when we listen to messages, we think to ourselves, I wish my brother-in-law were here, or I wish my friend were here, or I wish my son was here, I wish my cousin was here, I wish my coworker was here, I wish my neighbor was here, because they've made up this God in their head that really isn't the God of the Bible, and so they should be hearing this, that this is the primary character trait of God, that God reveals himself. God is both free and able to completely define who he is. I wish they were here, but let me tell you, men and women of faith, Church people, Christians, we do this very often as well. And when there's difficult doctrines of the Bible and difficult things that the scripture says about God, we tweak it just a little bit because it's hard sometimes. It's difficult to understand or it's difficult to wrap our mind around or we don't quite understand what God is doing and so we just tweak it and just touch it and instead of letting God reveal who he is, we push on it just a little bit. Here's what this character trait of God means. Here's what this attribute of God means for you and me. Number one is that we must release our perceived right to know what God is doing. Yikes. We must release our perceived, use that word on purpose, our perceived right to know what God is doing, to understand him completely or define him fully. And that's hard. Even Christian people, that's hard. The second thing this means for us is that we must rely upon God's revelation of himself alone for our knowledge of him. I'll say it again. We must rely upon God's revelation alone for our knowledge of him. He is the self-revealing God of the Bible. The Lord proclaims the Lord, and so we rely on his revelation of himself for our knowledge of him. How many times have you ever heard somebody say something about God, and maybe it's right, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's biblical, and maybe it's not? But you ask them, "Where'd you get that from? How do you understand that? Or what? You know, tell me what's going on there." And they respond, "Tell me if you've ever heard this before." Tell me if people respond this way. Well, it's just my own personal belief. You ever heard that before? Okay. How about this one? Um, Well, the God I believe in would never do that. Or the God I, I believe in would always do this. Or the God I believe in is this way. Has <coughs> anybody caught the cold that's going around? If you haven't yet caught that, come shake my hand afterwards. i would be happy to give it to you. But, but this whole my own personal belief thing doesn't work. Or even this whole the God I believe in doesn't work. I I I understand the God you believe in. I get that. What about the God that is? The God that is and has decided to reveal Himself to us and proclaim His name and character. So we begin our understanding of God with this first character trait. God reveals God, God's self-revelation. The second thing we see in the passage, the second aspect of God, the second character trait of God is God's eminence. God's eminence. I told you we would use seminary words this morning. God's eminence. Here's what the word eminence means. is is that God is both present and active in nature, humanity, and history. God is both present and active in nature, humanity, and history history. There's kind of a a set of thinking out there, some logic out there, and it's called deism. Now, your friends and family may not say that they're deists, but I would guarantee you that you know some deists, even if they don't know that word. Here's what deism suggests. Deism suggests that God took the world and kind of set it spinning on its axis and, you know, set it spinning like a top and then walked away. And just let it do whatever it was gonna do in case i arrived, created it, but I'm no longer involved in it. I'm no longer intimately involved in history. I'm no longer intimately involved in nature and humanity. <laughs> God walks away and set, sets the world spinning on like a top on its axis and walks away and just lets it be. Anybody have friends or family like that? So when God introduces himself in Exodus chapter 34, he wants us to know right from the beginning that he is not a far off God. He is not a God that's separated from. He's a God that's intimately involved with. He's both present and active in nature, humanity, and history. Let's look at it in the text. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5 says this, that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. (coughs) You guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's distracting. It's probably even more distracting that I mention it, isn't it? Whatever. Okay. Here's what the scripture is saying. The scripture is not saying that God took on the form of a man, not yet by the way, but God took on the form of a man and literally stood with Moses. The scripture uses these words and they're called anthropopathisms or anthropomorphisms. I told you we were going to use big words today. Anthropopathisms or anthropomorphisms. What that means is that the scripture assigns human behavior, thoughts, or feelings to God in order for us to understand what God is doing and what, it's, what he's about. Remember, he wants to reveal himself. He wants to declare himself. And so God descends and stands. What does the Bible want us to know? That God stood with Moses. He presented himself to Moses. And that he descended, he came down from on high in order to interact with And have a conversation with Moses. He came near to Moses. That theological term is God was eminent. God was near. He's intimately involved. He did not set the world spinning on its axis and walk away. He's involved in your each and every day, each and every moment of your life. We see examples of God's eminence, his nearness, his descending and standing with us all over the scripture. You want to know the best one? Jesus. God got near real quick in the person of Jesus Christ. Psalm 139 says this about God. I I might even read the whole thing here verses 1 through 18. It's unbelievable. The psalmist writes this. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Does that sound like a God that's far off? No. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Where should I go from your spirit? Where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. "'If I take on the wings of the morning "'and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, "'even there your hand shall lead me "'and your right hand shall hold me. "'For you formed my inward parts, "'you knitted me together in my mother's womb. "'How intimate and near and imminent is God. "'I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. "'Wonderful are your works. "'My soul knows it very well. "'My frame was not hidden from you "'when I was being made in secret.' Intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them Psalm 34:18 says God is near to the brokenhearted The entire book of Job and Hebrews 13, 5 says that God is near to us in our trial. James 4, verse 8 says that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. He's not far away. He's not absent. He's not uninvolved. He is near and imminent in every aspect of your life. So here's what that means for you, believer in Christ, and even those who don't believe. Even if you don't believe God exists, can I tell you? He's near to you at all times. God is near to you at all times. God is near to me at all times. He is imminent. He's close. He descended and stood with Moses there. For the believer, this should give you great encouragement and hope. In a hospital room, God is near. In the midst of, of a difficult divorce, God is near. When you're celebrating a birthday, God is near. When you're remembering a lost loved one, God is near. When you're working hard, God is near. On your commute, God is near. When you sit down to breakfast, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, God is near in each and every aspect of your life. That's good news, isn't it? And God wants us to know that from day one. The other thing that this might cause us to shift, the other reason this matters, remember we talked about what we believe about God matters. The other reason why this matters is if God is near to me at all times, would that not cause us to live a little bit differently sometimes? Would that not cause us to make different choices sometimes? We'll get back to choices next week. Would that not cause us to kind of tweak what we see and how we respond? God is near. He's imminent. Character trait number three, God's holiness. God's holiness. Let's define holiness because there's two aspects in Scripture of God's holiness. The first is God's otherness, and the second is his absolute moral purity. God's otherness and his absolute moral purity. We're going to talk about those one at a time. The first aspect of God's holiness is his otherness, that he's different than you and me, that he's set apart from you and me, that he's not like you and me. Let's look at it in the scripture. Exodus 34, 2. God says this to Moses: Be ready by the morning. No one shall come up with you. And no one, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain, let no flocks Or herds graze opposite that mountain. We've talked about this before, but anytime the Bible repeats something, it's really, really important. What is God repeating to Moses here? Who does God want to come up with Moses? No one. Not a trick question. God does not want anyone else to come up with Moses. Why? Because God is different he's set apart he understands that he is holy that he is other than i want to show you all throughout the scripture exodus 15 11 says who is like you O lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God is other than. There's no one like him. Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 57. <coughs> Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is my favorite passage about God's otherness, his Different, his differentness than us, his holiness. Isaiah writes this from, or about, God is speaking here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know about you, but I get caught up in life sometimes thinking that God is like me, just smarter. Or he's like me, just stronger. Or he's like me, just older. He's been around a lot longer than I have. God enters the scene in Exodus 34 and throughout the scripture and he says, no, 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 no. I'm not like you. I don't think like you. I don't behave like you. I am totally other than you. Holy. The second aspect of God's holiness that he wants us to understand is his absolute moral purity. His absolute moral purity. Look at Exodus 34, verse 7. Remember, God is continuing to introduce himself to Moses. He says he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I know that this is a difficult doctrine to understand, especially not just God's moral purity, because I think we get that, but the implications of God's moral purity. I know it's a difficult doctrine to understand, a difficult doctrine to swallow sometimes, but we're going to talk bad news here for a minute. And we'll get to good news, I promise. We'll get there, so be patient with me. But let's talk about why God would say that he will by no means clear the guilty. What's going on there? It comes from his holiness. It comes from his absolute moral purity. I'll read a couple of scriptures and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 24. The psalmist writes this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that's not me. And that's not you. That's not any of us. No one can stand before God because we don't have clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and not, does not swear deceitfully. Isaiah 6, when the angels are calling out to God, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk writes this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is totally morally pure and he cannot look at anything that is not totally morally pure. He's completely holy. No sin has ever crossed his lips. No sin has ever crossed his mind. No impure motive has ever crossed his heart. Anytime God had an opportunity to do good, he did it. No sins of omission either. God has always done justice. God has always been merciful. Everything he says is true and right. He is totally morally pure and holy. So here's a difficult question for you and me. If, if you and I are made in the image of God, which we are, Genesis chapter 1 says that you and I are made in the image of God, and God is holy, then how should we be? Holy. If we're made in his image, if we're made to look like him, if we're made to be like him, if we're made in his image and he is totally morally pure, then you and I are supposed to be totally morally pure. Leviticus 20, 26, God commands it. Be holy as I am holy. Real straightforward. But we haven't done all that well, have we? We haven't been totally morally pure. And so God's response to our lack of holiness because of his complete moral purity, and total holiness is righteous anger, is justified wrath. Now, I know that no one likes to talk about the wrath of God. I know no one likes to talk about the anger of God, but I just want to show it to you in the scripture, and we're going to get to his grace in a minute, but stick with me here. Listen to what Nahum, the prophet in the Old Testament, writes. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. There it is again. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Anger, his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That does not sound good, does it? doesn't sound good at all, and we think that's just the Old Testament, and we're like, okay, now we're in the New Covenant, now we're in the New Testament, and people will say that sometimes, that's the little tweak, right? That's the little shift, that's the little change. Well, that's not really, that's the God of the Old Testament, that's not really the God of the New Testament, except for 2 Thessalonians 1, Romans 1, Romans 2, 5, Romans 5, 9, Romans 12, 19, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, Revelation 6, Revelation 16, Luke 21. Do you want me to keep going, or? A guy named Arthur Pink uh, observes this. There are more references in scripture to God's anger than there are his grace and love. We're going to get to his grace and love. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Don't, Don't panic with me. But because of God's holiness, because of his absolute moral purity, he is justified in his anger. And we ask ourselves, wow, is my sin, is my lack of moral purity, is it really that bad? Does it really... Is God really not able to stand in that? Is is he really not able to look on me because of my sin, because of my lack of holiness? Is it really that bad? It's just a little sin. It's just a little sin. Let's put it this way. When I was in college, I played soccer, and uh, we would go out and train two-a-days. That means we would train for two hours in the morning and three hours in the evening, and we were running all the time time, and what happens when you run really, really hard for a long period of time? Sometimes people get sick, don't they? Sometimes people vomit. This story is going to get real gross real quick. You're going to love it. Okay, so we had a water jug, a big water jug, and there were hoses that came out of the water jug, and all of the guys on the team, all of my buddies that were all on the team playing soccer together in college, we all drank out of a different hose, but we never put a lid on the water jug. All right? Open. A buddy of mine, a teammate, running, 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 gets sick and begins to vomit. He literally takes his hand like this and he wipes vomit off his mouth and goes like this. And that much, just that much, bloop, right in the top of the water jug. Now, of course, all the guys on the team said, well, it's just a little vomit. We can just keep drinking this, can't we? No, of course we didn't. Of course. Look, I realize that that's a disgusting story. I get that. But when God says that if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth, that's, that, that word is vomit there. This is how he sees our sin. Now, pop culture tends to ignore God's holiness. And crazy cults, they don't talk about God's grace. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not how God chose to introduce himself. He revealed himself. He came near. He proclaimed his holiness in the fourth attribute of God. Now listen, this is, a, this is unbelievable. It's his grace. It's his grace. Listen to what God says to us, and we'll talk about how grace and holiness work together. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's what God says. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't it interesting that the very first attribute of God that he wants to introduce to you and me is his mercy and grace and love and kindness. Here's an easy definition of God's grace. God's grace is the undeserved favor that God pours out on humanity. The undeserved favor that God pours out on humanity. Now, let's talk about grace and holiness. because Some of you might be thinking, wow, okay, God is totally morally pure. The pastor is telling me that, that I've sinned, that I've walked away from that moral purity, and the way that God looks at me now is with righteous indignation. How could God be good at the same time? How could God be gracious at the same time? How could God show me favor and goodness at the same time? Now, this is so critical because this is what the Bible teaches now. So pop culture might tell you or wacky theologians might tell you that God just swept his anger onto the rug. He just acted like it wasn't there. But, but wait a minute. Now God's compromising his character, isn't he? But God doesn't compromise his character. Or wacky theologians might tell you that God's really not all that gracious, God's really not all that good. He's just mad at you all the time. He just has wrath for you all the time. And those are wacky theologians too because we don't understand in our finite mind how God could be both holy and gracious. How God could both satisfy his anger, not sweep it under the rug, not compromise it, satisfy both his holiness and his grace. You ready? Here it is. Jesus. Jesus, now watch this, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Therefore, in Hebrews 2, therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John two, 2 he, that's Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the... Propitiation for our sins. Again, $2 theological words. Now watch this. People have asked me before, like, did you write a sermon just so you could use the word propitiation? No, God uses it. So let's understand it together. Propitiation, that word, means the act of appeasing. To gain or regain favor or goodwill. So here's what God does. Instead of sweeping his holiness under the rug, instead of compromising his holiness, instead of acting like that isn't true about him, or instead of compromising his grace and just pouring out his righteous indignation on us, here's what God does. He sends his son Jesus to appease his wrath. He sends his son Jesus, and the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So God pours out all that righteous indignation on Christ, all that wrath on Christ, all of his holiness completely satisfied in Christ. And what does that mean for you? That you don't have to anymore. That we sing, he's a good, good father. It's who he is, it's who he is, and now I am loved by him. It's who I am. He looks and says, I am pleased with you. Not because of anything I've done, but because Christ is the propitiation. Because Christ went to the cross on my behalf. Because Christ took the penalty that I owed God. That Christ paid my debt. And so God now is gracious to me and kind to me and pours out undeserved favor on me each and every day. If if a murderer went before a judge and the judge said, you know what, the gavel comes down, you're convicted, you're guilty, you really did this, but I'm just going to choose to ignore it this time, see you later. You would say, well, that's a horrible judge, wouldn't you? The murderer still deserves the penalty. But what if that judge says, you deserve a penalty, you really did it, you're convicted, you owe society a debt now, you owe even me because of what you've done. But instead of pouring out the justice that you deserve, I'm going to let my son take the penalty for you. Now, that's a righteous judge and a good judge, isn't it? A gracious judge that paid a debt on our behalf, that sent his son on our behalf, that sacrificed for us. That is propitiation, and so God's holiness and grace can now coexist and be completely satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. God has shown me favor that I did not deserve. God has shown me favor and grace and kindness and goodness that I did not deserve. Now I'm free from the penalty of sin. I'm free from spending an eternity apart from God only because of Jesus, only because of his grace. So what's the only right response in the face of a God like that? in the face of a God that would sacrifice for you and me, in the face of a God that showed us favor that we didn't deserve and grace that we didn't deserve. Let's look at Moses' response and then we'll be done. What's the right response, Exodus 34, 8? And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. There it is. Worship is the only right response. I love that the scripture adds an adverb here. How did Moses bow his head and worship? He did so what? Quickly. I'm a, member, I'm a member of Save the Adverb Society anyway, so I just love that there's an adverb there. He did so quickly, and he gave God glory and worshiped God for the grace that He poured out, that is the very heart of who He is. Men and women of God, even those who don't know him, can I just tell you something this morning? That because of who God is, not because of who you are, not because of anything that you've done, but because of who he is, not because of anything that I've done, not because of who I am, God loves me and is pleased with me. And check it, God loves you and is pleased with you. He has grace for you. He has favor for you. He has goodness for you. If God is for you, then check it. Who can be against you? That's better than what Ray Lewis said, I promise that. He has grace for you because of his son, Jesus. And he dealt with that penalty on the cross. And our one and only right response is to quickly bow our head and worship. That's what we're going to do, actually, this morning. I'm going to invite the band to come back up on platform. And there you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We did so quickly, didn't we? Look at that. The band didn't even get back up here. We're getting after it. Mm. So our response to God this morning is worship. Our response to him is to sing about his amazing grace. So let's stand and respond to God just as Moses did, shall we? And sing about the grace that God has poured out on you and me.